You're listening to the Florida Bar Podcast, brought to you by the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center, Legal Fuel, produced by the broadcast professionals of the Florida Bar. Welcome to the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel Podcast, brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. We're so glad you're joining us. This is Christine Bilbury. I'm a senior practice management advisor at the bar and one of the hosts of the show, which is being recorded from our studio in Tallahassee, Florida. And I'm Carla Eckhart. I'm a practice management advisor at the Florida Bar and a co-host of today's podcast. Our goal at the Practice Resource Center is to assist Florida attorneys with running the business side of their law practices. We focus on a different topic each month and carry the theme through our website with related tips, videos, and articles. We like to think that women have come a long way since Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg graduated first in her class but didn't receive a single job offer. But some statistics from the Aspire website suggest progress has been slow, including only 4% of top leadership jobs in the largest 100 firms are held by women. A 2014 study by the National Association of Women Lawyers found that in the largest 200 firms, only 18% of equity partners and 29% of non-equity partners are women. That same study found that nearly all larger firms, 94%, felt that retaining women lawyers was a problem for the firm, and 31% reported that attrition is a major obstacle for women to advance to equity partner. So joining us today to discuss what the studies are telling us about the current state of women in the law and how firms can successfully retain and engage female lawyers is Anne Brafford. Anne is a former equity partner at Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchius LLP and the founder of Aspire, an education and consulting firm for the legal profession. Anne is the vice president of the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, formerly known as the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. She is the chair and founder of of IWIL's Wellbeing Week in Law. She was the editor-in-chief and co-author of the 2017 report on the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. She is a past chair of the ABA Law Practice Division's Attorney Wellbeing Committee, and she created the ABA Wellbeing Toolkit for Lawyers and Legal Employers, and is the author of an ABA-published book titled Positive Professionals, which provides science-based guidance to law firm leaders for boosting work engagement for lawyers. Anne practiced law for 18 years after graduating from the University of Iowa Law School. She earned a master's degree in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania and is nearing completion of her doctoral work in positive organized psychology at Claremont Graduate University. Anne's research focuses on lawyer thriving, positive leadership, workplace well-being, work engagement, motivation, mental health, inclusion, and the retention and advancement of women lawyers. Welcome back to the show, Ann Brafford. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. So can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about the work that you do in lawyer well-being and what led you to it? Yes. I have focused in the, in the past couple of years, especially on well-being, kind of traditionally the way we think about well-being. But I have to say my heart has always been with engaging and retaining women lawyers and helping them advance. Uh, But let me focus a bit on well-being, which I think is highly related to those issues. And how I got engaged in the topic is that after I left, you know, the the practice of law, I was really, the reason that I left is that I was really interested in going back to school and figuring out what does science say and how can I learn the science and bring it back to the legal profession um, on the topic of creating workplace cultures where all kinds of people from different backgrounds um, can do well and thrive? And be- well-being is is very related to the topic of you know engagement and retention and and really feeling like you're the right fit in your job and doing the right thing. Uh, and so I got in, get, got involved with a lot of national level uh, organizations like the ABA, the National Task Force, now the Institute for Wellbeing and Law, to also focus more kind of narrowly and specifically on things like mental health. Um, and again, for me, like all of these are related, that when you think of retention and engagement of women lawyers and other diverse lawyers, the idea of feeling a sense of belonging, feeling that you're 
advancing uh, and developing and being accepted at work, like all of these things, the science shows are highly related uh, to mental health and well-being. So for me, I do, I focus on these different buckets of, you know, mental health uh, and inclusion of diverse lawyers. But for me, they are all highly intertwined. Definitely. And and much of what we're going to talk today is on the topic of retaining and engaging women. But again, like you said, it applies sort of across the board because if you can engage and retain women, you can engage and retain lawyers of diverse backgrounds. Again, just anyone that's outside of that traditional male law firm managing partner kind of situation. So to sort of follow up on that, in your article in Law Practice Today titled New Strategies for Engaging and Retaining Women Lawyers, You say, and I quote, the higher up the pyramid you look in the nation's largest law firms, the fewer women you'll find, end quote. But it seems like that's kind of a catch-22. Law firms report that they can't promote enough women because they've already left. And many women lawyers are saying they left because they knew they weren't going to be promoted. So what are some of the top reasons women are leaving the practice of law? I think there's there's myths about the top reason women are leaving, leaving law, uh, and then there's some realities that I think are a, a collection of a whole lot of different things. Um, I've done a good number of interviews in law firms, you know, with partners asking very directly this question of, you know, why are why do you believe your firm is having obstacles of improving the representation of women in the partnership, especially equity partnership. And everyone's first response is, well, women, you know, women have children. And once they have children, it just becomes too difficult. Uh, and the, they eventually lose the battle of, you know, work-life conflict. Um, and of course, there is some truth to that. Um, but I think firms have been too ready to throw up their hands uh, and say, you know, well, there's nothing that we can do about that. Women have children. And so women are going to leave. And I would really, you know, in my work, I I challenge that view because many of women, many women uh, with children do stay. And there are many uh, studies and surveys uh, outside the profession, some within the profession that show that those, that does not tend to be, work-life conflict does not tend to be among the top reason that women ultimately decide to leave. Uh, it's things like feeling that they're not advanced, they're not advancing, feeling that they're not supported, feeling that um, the, the environment has gotten too political and they're just, you know, that's not the kind of an environment they want to be in anymore. And so it's more of like there's a culture fit problem that if they felt that they were being supported by their direct leaders and their firm leaders, and they saw a path to success within their value system, that they would find a way um, to balance their their work and non-work priorities. Um, but when they're not getting, even when they feel that they're not being supported and there isn't another way, there isn't another route, then it's easier to leave. And, you know, some of the the interesting things about the differences between the rates of women and men leaving is that, you know, women do appear to tend to leave more. And one, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them is that women tend not to be socialized as providers. So it's not that men in the law firm environment, like, love the cultures either, um, there's plenty of evidence that that they also are are wanting better work and non non work balance. They want more fam- family time, um, but they are less likely to leave because they are socialized to be the provider for the family. And professional women often are in a position to make a choice. They're not generally um, some are, but they generally are not socialized as providers, and they're often married to a professional partner um, who gives them the option because of, you know, because of income to leave. And if they can leave, they do. And so there's, you know, this challenge of we, of understanding that because women see more choice than men, that that's one of the reasons that they leave. So we really need to work harder at making and making it an appealing environment that they want to stay in when they have choices and feel that they have choices to leave. 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And you, when you talked about it at the beginning, how it's all interrelated, the different buckets that you study, um, it made me think about um, the law.com article. It said one in four women attorneys are considering leaving the practice of law because of mental health, burnout, or stress. And that article cites a, a study by Patrick Krill that found that women attorneys are experiencing meaningfully worse mental health than men. Only 17% of men indicated the same. And why is there such a difference? Do you think women are really suffering more mental health issues or are they just more aware of it? Are they more willing to report it when surveyed? Yeah, I think there's a mix of things. And the study that you referenced is a new study. Uh, mm -hmm. And there, there are other studies that have occurred during the pandemic as well and showing that the exodus of women is rising. And it had, the pandemic was especially impactful for women with children, especially women with small children. And so I think like right now we're experiencing a particular surge because of the, of the difficulty of trying to do everything that women were, were still carrying the, the full load uh, of caring for their homes, trying to educate their, their children because of the lockdown orders, and then also trying to work. And the organizations generally were, were trying to be more flexible, but were still really being challenged uh, you know, during this particularly hard time, which many studies show has been more impactful on women. Um, and so I do think we're in a particularly difficult time right now one of the things that like I'm hoping one silver lining of the pandemic is that organizations see that greater flexibility is possible, both in the time and location of work, which I think will benefit women going forward. But even like outside of this, the pandemic time, generally speaking, women do have higher rates of depression and anxiety than men. And you know, there's differing perspectives on is it because there is something about how women process emotions uh, in different ways than men, which makes them more likely to experience negative emotional experiences, or is it that they're more likely to report it? And, and it's probably a little bit of both. Um, and so especially now that where mental health has always been a really important issue within the legal profession. It's getting more and more attention now, which is great to see. But I think now that we're finally coming out of the pandemic, there does seem to be a great questioning among many lawyers, uh, and especially women lawyers, of is this what I want my life to be? Um, this has been really hard. I, I don't know that my organization is being as supportive as I would like them to be is this really what I want for my life going forward? And many are choosing to leave. So I think we're really at an important point right now, a real turning point in for law firms and other legal employers to really think about what do they, what are their firms going to look like going forward? Um, because more, you know, more is needed and, and progress is needed pretty quickly when we're seeing these, you know, surveys and feedback. And I've done focus groups of, people like large groups of lawyers um, really considering leaving now after this really difficult experience through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I think there's been such a shift. I mean, a lot of, I hear from a lot of young attorneys who say, well, I know my life's going to be miserable at big law, but I'm going to go for two years, make the money, pay off my student loans and get out. And, um, and it's not a problem unique to the legal profession either. I mean, every industry has had sort of a similar reaction. Or, so it, it's important for people to remember this is happening across the board and it's just sort of highlighted in the legal profession because it was already this sort of really intense culture that wasn't conducive to retaining and engaging women and women lawyers and others of diverse backgrounds. And when you're talking about what the law firm is going to look like going forward, so many, when everybody was working from home or most people were working from home, um, I think people got a taste of what it could be, uh, the flex you know, more of a, we even did a whole episode on parental leave and we had a female attorney who had literally just had her second baby and she was working remotely. She did our podcast while she was kind of easing back in. But like going forward, it sounded like both of the women on that uh, worked at 
in situations where they were going to be allowed to work from home. So do you think that there's going to be some positives coming out of this, like with, with that kind of work-life flexibility because of the technology? Are you seeing any of that? I, I really do. And I've been, in, I've been talking to especially larger law firms more recently about what are their plans. And they are struggling. You know, they're, they're trying to understand what can work, what are the options, what are the possibilities, trying out some new things. And I would say mostly I hear firms going in the direction of trying to retain this flexibility, which just makes a lot of sense because we now have a year's worth of evidence, you know, that workers remain highly productive, uh, even working from home. So I, I have been encouraging that and hope that firms continue to experiment knowing it's not going to be easy. Um, but, but at least now not having, they, they now have evidence that it can work. Um, so I think it's more encouraging that they will. And I think there's, there's other things in addition to flexibility as well. And one of the, the sort of seeing this idea of work-life, I'll call it work-life balance. I know some people don't like that term, but we all know what that means. You know, (laughs) trying to, uh, trying to care for all of our priorities. Um, there's, there's, uh, quite a few studies showing that one of the things that has the biggest impact on people's experience of conflict is their relationship with their direct supervisor. And I think this is something that hasn't gotten enough attention. Um, and there's studies showing like really specific behaviors of the supervisor of specific, you know, having very focused discussions on what are the non-work priorities? How can the supervisor be supportive uh, in in helping the juggling with those priorities, themselves demonstrating that they have priorities outside of work um, and being, you know, open and candid about that and just always trying to take into account how can we make all of these things that are important um, to, to our lawyers and our non-lawyers, how can we try to continually take that into account? And what the research shows is when the, you know, when supervisors demonstrate these behaviors that the, the workers that they're, um, that are being supervised experience less conflict. And this is, you know, not, it doesn't necessarily mean there's a reduction in hours, but part of a big, uh, contributor to our experience of, conflict is because we don't let ourselves off the hook. Like even when we're not working, we're still worried. You know, should we be working? Have I responded quickly enough? Do I, am I checking my email enough? And that raises the experience of conflict where when you have a supervisor that lets you, you know, psychologically detach a bit from work and recover and rest, that has the effect of raising job satisfaction and lowering the experience of conflict, even for people who who are working really hard. You know, of course, we also need to look at the, you know, people working too many hours. That's that's just an issue as well. But even aside from that difficult problem is this issue of improving the experience of people who are working very hard by being supportive, by having a supportive environment rather than approaching, you know, work-life balance as something that is just the responsible of the individual, that the firm and, you know, the partners and, and other leaders in the organizations aren't really responsible for. We really, this really is a team sport. You know, if we, if we really want to change culture, we're kind of all in this together. So sort of further to your comments just now, on your website, you state that since the law firm model was constructed by men for men, it may be that firms have been modeled to shape to the shape of men's motivational patterns. So what does the work climate of a model law firm look like if it was designed to specifically appeal to motivate and retain women or others of diverse backgrounds? So what's uh, some of the... Um the the evidence on sort of gender differences in work values and work cultures show is like, first of all, can we maybe just like (laughs) acknowledge and have a discussion about there are gender differences, which can make people uncomfortable. Uh, And of course, it's not that um, all men are this way or all women are another way, but there are patterns that you see uh, in the data that suggests there are these differences that may help explain why women leave more. And one of them is a, is the 
cultures that tend to be very individually oriented and driven, competitive, power oriented, dominance oriented, those sorts of cultures are, are fine for men. <laughs> men can generally, again, you know, on average can thrive in those cultures and are attracted to them. Um, where women on average tend to thrive more in more collaborative, team-spirited, relationship-oriented environments. And there's a really interesting body of research coming out of the STEM field, which, which also experiences a lot of challenges with retaining women, showing that when they, you know, show descriptions of workplaces um, and kind of purposes of work and the relational environment one that is, you know, sort of a lo loners competitive versus communal focused on positive impact, having good relationships that women are attracted to STEM fields um, when they have this description that is more like relational and thinking about the positive impact of work. And I, I think firms generally, you know, I, I grew up in a firm where I experienced this and it was a firm that I have a lot of respect for, but it definitely was very individually oriented in rewards and evaluations, very competitive. Um, sharp elbows are not uncommon in, in any firm. And those kinds of environments are just less, less attractive to women. And, and also like the low relational uh, component of a lot of law firms. And there's, you know, some interesting work that Larry Richard has done on the personality of lawyers, at least those that make partner in large law firms, and they tend to be less socially oriented. So they're, you know, kind of these, these organizations that don't um, prioritize close-knit relationships um, and that tend to be competitive and individually driven, those are not cultures that women are as likely to thrive in um, as men. And th there's a lot of, you know, a good number of other factors as well, but those are some of the top ones that I think are particularly interesting that when you, you know, when I've heard people talking about culture change, they focus a lot on implicit bias. And I think that's, that's really important, but there, it's a lot more than just that, that they're, they're actually a way that, you know, the cultures were built around this in, you know, sort of individual contributor, competitive uh, environment that we also should take a look at. Yeah. And I, th you bring that up and I think a lot of firms are afraid that if they change the model of how they're doing it, that it's going to affect their bottom line. And so they want everyone to be just striving and competing because they think that's going to bring out, you know, this competitive edge that maybe what, what you're talking about with Larry Richard, who makes partner, the partner personality, but it's almost like a fraternity where, um, the partners are like, I suffered when I was an associate, so you have to suffer. It's like some sort of initiation thing. And I, that, I'm a female and that appeals to me not at all. Um, <laughs> yep. So, I, and it was, Patrick Krill um, says something that was interesting to me. He said, the legal profession needs to be more women friendly, woman friendly, but also more family friendly. And I keep thinking, we can take it a step farther and say the profession needs to be more human friendly. Yes. Um, so when we're talking about what firms can do and they're, they're keeping their eye on the bottom line, are there things that you've seen? Like if you, instead of everyone, you know, doing the sharp elbows to each other, can you create teams? You know, I just, I know there's always departments like this is our litigation department. This is our real estate department. But in, like you, everybody wins together or everybody loses together. Right. There's board games. Collaborative. collaborative. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So are there law firms that have, have experimented with that? Yeah. It, yes, a bit. And, and I will say, I just have to completely agree with you on changing it to human friendly. And that it, like, that's my approach in positive professionals. That's my approach in my dissertation work is that everything that I talk about that will help retain, engage women and help them advance also benefits men. Like, not, you know, none of this harms men. It's going to make it a better culture for everyone. And there's just, you know, more and more surveys of men also saying, like, this isn't the life that I want. I, I want to have more time outside of work. They're just less likely to leave, even though they're unhappy. So I'm completely with you that this really is about making 
um, making a more human environment, though there might be some tweaks that we think about um, where there's gender differences. Um, and I think like, as you mentioned, making, doing some more team approach uh, work, having some rewards and incentives uh, based on teams is, there are some firms um, that do that, that they they have really tried to diminish the focus on, uh, you know, like for equity partners, it's like, what is their, um, uh, what, what are their uh, contributions with respect to business development? And the way that's measured, other firms are trying to experiment with that of not giving just one person credit, um, of sharing credit, of not necessarily, you know, of counting credit in different ways, um, which I think will, will help with this. And for the, you know, competitive spirit, many women are just as competitive as men. Yeah, absolutely. So just finding ways to shape the competition in ways that are, you know, that are more collaborative, uh, of making that something that, partners are evaluated on, you know, their, um, their contribution to the elements of the culture that we care about of developing and, and retaining associates of teamwork, you know, of these kinds of things, rather than the, the focus really is primarily on how many hours have you built and how much credit have you received for your business development efforts. Um, and just adding more, adding more incentives, even if you keep those, but also adding some that will draw attention to team and collaboration will also help. And um, another thing to draw attention to, I think, and again, this is like not necessarily, it's like perhaps adding things and, and, and not subtracting things is a way to look at it, that there's a good deal of research showing that women are women view achievement as less tied to financial uh um means so money is important because we all want to feel that we're being treated fairly but what also is very important to them is feeling that um their work is meaningful and has a positive impact on others you know whether that's those in like the the lawyers that they work with their clients um the community and so when you're thinking about the way messages are delivered in law firms, um, success often is communicated by how much money someone has brought in, you know, a win in litigation, those kinds of things. And that's, you know, that's great. There's, there's no reason to, to stop those things. Law firms are businesses and, and those are important. But can we add messages about the positive impact, having having our clients talk about the positive impact that our work has, of having our leaders talk more about what it means to be a professional, what it means to be a lawyer, why this is important um, in a bigger sense, you know, may have uh, a greater impact on women who tend to be more intrinsically oriented than men, of adding those messages of why this matters in a bigger sense. Why should I care? When it gets hard, why should I keep doing this? Um, I think as one way that, you know, it's not that hard to do. It doesn't cost a lot of money. It's just about adding new messages, uh, more diverse messages, so that a whole broad set of different people might feel more engaged and motivated by the work who might not necessarily be as motivated just by making a lot of money. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of times when you're working on a part of something, you can't see the bigger picture. And I think people, you know, if you're at the top, you're like, isn't it obvious? But people need to feel connected that it matters. I can see that being a, you know, a huge thing for engagement. I also think about, um, aside from the money, another thing I think about if firms could do more teams, like where you learn to trust your team. I know that all these firms um, promise a lot of vacation and then nobody takes it. I think if you were on a team and you trusted your team, the work's always going to be there. But if you could really take your vacation and not look at your email and not answer <laughs> your phone, and you knew that that right. wasn't like you weren't going to fall 10 steps behind everybody. Right. That the world wasn't going to fall apart yeah. if, if you I'll take this week, life. you go next. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like just... I feel like that could almost be a thing that that associates could start doing with each other even, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to have the whole firm restructure to try to start supporting each other. Yeah, I think that idea of the team approach because for, like firms generally speaking, like they're more project oriented. So a team may come and go, but it is very team driven. 
And I recently you know, just wrote a handbook for, for law firms who are developing well-being programs that focus on this very issue of one of the challenges we have is that we don't talk about these things. So it might be that, you know, I'm an associate and I go on vacation and I'm checking my email every 10 minutes because I think I have to, but maybe no one expects me to. And the fact that we don't have, we don't communicate about it um, is a challenge. And it, it might be that the partner, you know, does have unreasonable expectations. And so that's good to have a conversation around too. Um, and so one of the things I've encouraged and we just, um, you know, at the, during Wellbeing Week, we did this, this a few months ago, we had some speakers come in that talked about how you facilitate these team discussions of actually having people say out loud, you know, what their values and goals are and what that means and then making commitments to each other about how they're going to carry out those behaviors. Like, you know, for example, everyone will say, you know, they want respect. They want teammates that respect them, but respect looks different to different people. And so being very concrete about what that means. Um, and this includes, you know, these really important things related to time. So can we agree, you know, that at what time we can stop looking at our email or in, in case of emergencies, here's what we do and here's what we do in vacations of just having those conversations and making commitments to each other, I think could go an enormous way toward helping um, not just associates, but also partners, like feel like they are supported and that they can occasionally psychologically disconnect uh, and recover from their really hard work. So I think that's a great point of really focusing on the teams and their own, their team values and how they treat each other and what commitments they make to each other. Yeah, maybe even put it in writing in the personnel manner, you know, unless there's some, if if you have trial in the morning, that's different. Right. But, but, <laughs> you talk about that, that, right? But hey, let's have a yeah, conversation right. about that. Isn't, isn't that a crazy idea? <laughs> yes. right. right, right, right. Well, we want to get back to that handbook you wrote, yes. but I, I want to take it back a little bit because I, I want our listeners to understand that while women are not necessarily motivated by money as much, as much, we want to get paid. I want to get paid just because <laughs> I want to make more money just like everybody yes. else. Um, but we do need to address the pay gap that yes. exists for women in law. And studies have shown that implicit bias is a major factor, as you mentioned earlier. And in a 2019 ABA article, uh, the author Rebecca Shaw wrote that the legal community has seen a wave of litigation alleging that prominent law firms discriminate against female attorneys in pay, promotions, and opportunities. One suit claims that the law firm denied female shareholders the same opportunities, training, and business credit provided to male shareholders. So it looks like many women are being treated worse and paid less. It's like death by a thousand cuts. What are firms doing to correct the disparities or are they doing anything at all? Yeah, so I will say there is a gap what of things they might be doing and things that they are doing. But I know firms are, are working on it. Um, and I just, I just have to say, because what you just said just made me think of this really strange, repetitive research finding that what you're saying is absolutely true. Women generally have, they're paid less and have worse opportunities, but yet their job satisfaction scores, when they rate how satisfied they are with their jobs, they generally do not differ from men because women tend to internalize their issues. So if there's a problem, they consider it their problem and not something that's going on in the organization. So I've just it's just a fascinating issue that so part of the challenge is getting women to, you know, <laughs> see that there's a problem. And men to talk about the fact that they they, too, are not happy. I mean, I think it goes both Absolutely. ways. It's not a woman problem. It's a firm problem. And I think Christine and I have been reading a ton on the topic. And that seems to be uh, sort of something that keeps coming up. It is not a woman's issue. And I think uh, the current ABA president and all past female presidents recently signed a letter uh, where they essentially drove that point home where, again, it's not a woman problem. Yeah. And it, it's such a good point. There's the the National Association for Women Lawyers did, they do their annual or semi-annual report. And a few years ago, they looked at women's initiatives. They sort of did a survey of what women's initiatives were doing within law firms. And almost every law firm that responded, it was like 99%, had a women's initiative. Um, 
but then you look at, well, what do the women's initiatives do? Do they have, do they have goals? <laughs> like all those, do they have budgets, that sort of thing? But the thing that yeah. I found fascinating was that none of them invited men. There was no discussion oh. of like men's participation or involvement in the women's initiatives. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a recipe for failure. Like, you know, in, in my opinion, that the people that generally hold, um, the top positions of power and influence, um, are men and we, we need them on board, uh, as allies, as feeling invested, uh, in, in these issues that it is, you know, it, it is a firm issue. It is their issue and figuring out ways to help them feel its importance in a personal way, um, I think is a big challenge, but, but I absolutely agree with you. And the, the approaches that I tend to take in my work are how, <laughs> how can we approach this in a way that everyone feels like they're being benefited? Um, because it, there's research showing that, um, men, you know, people in dominant positions also experience, um, social identity threat. So women's initiatives can feel threatening to men. Uh, and, and certainly not all men, but there's even physiological evidence showing when organizations are described as diversity friendly, men's blood pressure rises, you know, and they, ex they, wow. they physically experience stress and anxiety. Um, and so understanding that that's going on, like, are there ways that absolutely we need our explicit women's initiatives? Those are important for women to, to feel like something is being done about the issue and, um, get together and, and share and, and all those types of things. But are there also approaches that we can take that will benefit everyone, but we also know are going to really benefit, you know, women and other diverse lawyers that are a kind of like a Trojan horse that they'll be able to help us get around that social identity threat of the people in power who once that threat, you know, once they experience that threat, what the research shows is they're more likely to sort of circle the wagons that they become more rigid. They're less likely to be open-minded. They're less likely to want to assist, you know, and, and that's a challenge. Like we, we need everyone uh, on board. And so these are tricky, complex situations where there's no, one right answer, but I can say like, but one of them has to be that men are involved. <laughs> and and yeah, right now the absolutely. women's initiatives generally are not involving men. Well, it's diversity and inclusion, not diversity and exclusion. Right. And that means yeah. all of us, <laughs> well, men included. I, I think if I was at a firm and they said, oh, the women's initiatives meeting is down the hall and there were no men there. Um, I, it, I don't know. And what you're saying is that they, it, when their blood pressure rises, I think that there's a feeling whether they're being attacked. Well, it's it's a zero sum game. <laughs> right. If you gain, then I lose. Yes. Right. And it's like not. the two things are not mutually exclusive. But and it is implicit bias because I think that they're immediately if if they have you know that raises their hackles that you've even mentioned that they need to work on this and then they're not really involved. So it it comes up. So when you're talking about like oh your firm has a problem with how the women are treated. They're going to tell you, no, we don't. And then when you point it out to them, they're going to rationalize their behavior. Yes. So you do this work. <laughs> so when, when you have gone into a firm to consult on how to improve the overall work climate, um, do you find that work, the firm leaders, are they sincerely trying to implement the changes? Or is it a struggle for them to overcome these established behaviors, biases, attitudes? What's what's really going on? Because a firm can say, "Oh yes, we brought Ann Bradford in," and then we did it. Then and what then happened? We did nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> I shouldn't say that. Um, so, what? There's no one answer to that, and I'm sure that doesn't surprise you. Like it's a continuum. Even in you know, I've had interviews with. Interviewing senior male partners is fascinating. And even with them, they're not surprisingly a huge continuum. Some of them are take the advancement of women and women's issues very seriously, often because there's something that happened in their own personal story. Maybe they have daughters, maybe something happened to their wife, but they'll often tell a personal story about why this matters to them. That's one end of the spectrum where this is highly internalized and important to them. They're committed to it. The other end of the spectrum, you know, is I'm not committed to it. I don't think it's important and I actually think it's harmful. And then there's the vast majority of people which are in the middle, which is, yeah, I think it's important, but 
my life is so busy. I can barely get my own work done. This is just not something I personally have time to invest in. And so it's sort of moving that middle group, the the group on the other end of the spectrum, there's probably not a lot that we can do about. Um, but the middle, you know, there is of, of how do we figure out um, how to help them feel more invested and committed? Because I get it, you know, partners are extremely busy. Um, and they have so many demands on their time that just paying attention to your own life and your own work is exhausting. So adding that, hey, you, you know, you also need to do X, Y, and Z um, and add to it some of the things that we already talked about, if we, they may have ambivalent feelings about it, uh, it's, um, it's tough. So I wouldn't say that, I can't say that there's firms or individuals that have any one response. I think some absolutely are trying. It is not just window dressing. They're trying to figure out these in incredibly complex issues. And there's others that I would say it's window dressing, that they're kind of stuck on the old view, the old myth that women have children and there's nothing we can do about it. And they throw up their hands. So I think, you know, well, progress yes, is being biologically, made. <laughs> that's a fact. <laughs> but but surely even, there's more to it. Yeah. I think about even, yeah, but there's lots of women that don't plan to have children right. and are still suffering all of this right. bias right. against them. In our Parental them. Leave podcast yes. episode, one of the yes. women lawyer guests, you know, she said, I don't have children, but I benefit from policies that yes. are inclusive and yes. that support families. It's not just women. It's supporting families. You could have sure. elderly parents you're taking right. care of or you just want to be a healthy person. So is it more productive to say we're going to have a, you know, a, a life, I don't know how you would phrase that, like you never bring up the you know, children. the buzzword, women, children, <laughs> Pregnancy. <laughs> you know, those things you have to say, we're going to improve the quality of life for everyone at the firm. I mean, yeah, so because really, isn't it the same things that you would do for everyone? It is. I just think there needs support. to be a mix of approaches. Um, because like I said, like there's a, con there's a continuum of responses. So there are people that are on board and we'll talk with you about <laughs> you know, the challenges of the firm leaders who will talk about, you know, the challenges of the leave policies and those things. And you can have those really direct conversations about, we need to improve retention advancement of women and they're not gonna, you know, have, <laughs> have a heart attack on you. Um, so I think it's a mix of approaches. And this is really what the research is suggesting as well as this hybrid approach of having some initiatives that are explicit and identity conscious so that there is still, a, you know, a woman's initiative, which is important for women. If you didn't have a woman's initiative, there are many women that would feel that the firm wasn't paying attention. And the idea of having um, communities where women can go and talk about issues for them and feel safe. Like these things are important, but can we add to it these things that are um, more social identity blind that we don't necessarily talk about gender or race, but we know that it's having an influence. And that's when, when I wrote my book, Positive Professionals, that really, that was the approach that I was taking. I talk about engagement knowing secretly in the back of my mind that this was a book to help retain and engage women. But that that <laughs> So you, you you are the Trojan horse. I'm working okay. on the Trojan horse. <laughs> yes. That thinking about engagement for all lawyers, like everything that a firm would do to improve mental health and engagement for its lawyers. They're like these behaviors are the same as if is there's a lot of overlap at least, right? It as those it, that we were focusing directly on how do we create a culture that women are more likely to stay, um, you know, in advance and feel engaged. So I think that is, you know, one part of, of the overall package, that these are a collection of things, that there's no one silver bullet, that we need a collection of all of them. And I think this last piece of sort of, you know, engagement, the social identity blind approaches are that firms have not been experimenting as much with. And it is like, it is starting with leader development of most firms have very limited leader development for their partners, um, you know, and their, and their senior associates. So just teaching leaders some of the like basic skills of good management, you know, which is relationship oriented management 
is a great first step toward the kinds of cultures, you know, that we're talking about. And we've, I don't want to be seen as bashing on men because there are so many supportive, wonderful male Our boss is great. Yes, yes. My <laughs> Shout husband out. is great. <laughs> My like, husband's awesome. Yeah, we, we've surrounded ourselves with wonderful- Clay, our producer, fantastic. Yes, for sure. <laughs> excellent human beings <laughs> that happen to be male. But the, the other thing that's popping up, and, and Carla kind of mentioned this, is older women that are kind of um, making it harder. in the sort of, it's a man's world and we have to yeah, play this they, man's they game. they played that game. And so like Sheryl Sandberg told us to lean in and I think I threw that book in the trash if I'm being perfectly honest. But at the time it seemed like the thing. And Carl and I are both reading um, Anne-Marie Slaughter's Unfinished Business book where they talk about that older women were criticized younger women for not sacrificing more for their careers or, or dropping out of the workforce. And then the thing that kicked up, and it was just a week ago, was this article on the ABA websites uh, written by this older woman who said, are women lawyers paying enough attention to upward mobility? And it hit the fan. So the ABA had to put a disclaimer on that. Um, The ABA president wrote an article, you know, in uh, reacting to it. There was another article by Wendy Weiner expressing her outrage. um, And she said, the article stands against everything women are still fighting for in today's workforce. Its views are archaic. It's not just an attack on women lawyers who are mothers. It's an attack on women lawyers as a whole. Um, And and then the ABA president, Patricia Lee Refo, said, uh, women lawyers are not a homogenous group who share the same life experiences or home situations. And we should not be lecturing women on lawyers, women lawyers, on how they should adjust their lives to achieve success. And so Carl and I had this conversation. It's the firms that need to change, not the women, but women have to support other women. Just because you made it to the top doesn't mean you get to kick the ladder out and say there's only one way up. Like Anne mentioned in the beginning, it's all these things that kind of tie in together. There's no one solution. And it all goes back to flexibility, leadership, what works for one. It It may be that, you know, a young woman like myself, a millennial, you know, is perfectly fine and comfortable and thrives in the traditional format, whereas I don't. But what's important is that my leadership, my supervisors, direct supervisors, so on and so forth, and my colleagues appreciate how I thrive and can sort of create an environment where we can both thrive. I mean, I think I think there's so many. There's a lot of different paths. Yeah, it doesn't have to be one way, but lumping it together, I think, um, becomes very problematic like that. Um, I do. I, I agree with, <laughs> you know, I agree. The thing I would say about, um, <laughs> about the article. So, I, of course, had to go read it after there was such a blow up about it. And here's my reaction is that sometimes having a little bit of honest reality check about firms really are is helpful. I don't think she approached it in the right way if that's what she was trying to do. Because what I think is that firms aren't that supportive right now as a whole. Um, and so, pretend, you know, at, pretending that they're different or if we say what they are getting attacked by it, like the, the fact still is, is that the cultures are what they've been for decades and that women need to fit into a culture that doesn't fit them uh, if they want to stay. There is some truth to that. Definitely. And if if you, you know, if I tell a young woman differently, I think I will not be serving her well. That, you know, of really helping them understand that there is some resilience that you're going to need to this because we're not to the ideal yet. There is so much work that still needs to be done. You know, please stay. Please be resilient and stay and help <laughs> there to be progress. So I actually think that, that that is an important message of we're not at the ideal yet. And there are some things that are hard that we don't like. But I, and so like, I wonder if that had been the goal. I like, I'm not sure because what it, what it came out like was the very, what has been the approach for many decades, which is fixing women, that women's initiatives generally, and, and I will say still to a great extent are about fixing women, about women need to be more of this and less of this. And basically making them be more like men, like men are, you know, women are approached as defective men. And if we could just make them more like men, then this would all work out fine. 
and you know more and more now and in you know, my approach has has kind of always been like let's stop trying to fix women there's certainly a something something to that absolutely we should make women as resilient as we can and all of those, those kinds of things like i think they're still important but we need to focus as much on the cultures that they're sitting in that need to evolve so that more people of you know different value systems different backgrounds can stay and don't have to fight so hard and i i do you know i agree with you that my experience my own experience as a partner uh, and i'm gen x i'm not a millennial was just as you're saying that there was a good deal of women that were not really on board with women's initiatives um there were some that like absolutely opposed them because they thought it set out it could only harm women by making women seem different you know or that they needed greater help and that sort of a thing and i think for some of those women's experiences it was completely understandable that that was their reaction like i i try to empathize you know with why why do they feel that way and women who felt differently probably left a long time ago so it's the you know the women that persisted tended to have and certainly not all of them i have some very supportive women you know, more senior colleagues, but some of them still have this old approach and almost feel like it will harm them to have more women or, you know, uh. just not having developed the empathy over the years. But addressing the issues with with everyone, like these issues of, of having even senior women be our allies, in addition to thinking about how do we recruit men to be our allies to this as well, that, you know, it's complicated that we have all kinds of friends yeah. that are important to recruit, to recruit people to really feel that this is their issue um, and why they should feel committed to it. And I think it can be very much a generational thing because if you're a millennial um, male, maybe you too would like a better work-life balance. Right. But if My husband would love to stay at home. <laughs> <laughs> but if you've seen what happened to women who spoke up and you're seen as the, the problem, I could see them just keeping it to themselves. So maybe part of being the ally is, is this younger generation of men saying, we want this too, we all want this, um, and, and pushing for those changes within the structure of the yeah, firm. Yeah, that is such a good point. And the, the stereotyping literature on male stereotypes is fascinating that it suggests that like the what what women are or what what we're supposed to be you know our stereotypes are changing much more quickly women are now have like a we have greater flexibility in who we can be um it is more rigid and less flexible and not changing as quickly for men um, to be a man is more rigid. Uh, and I have heard men talk about being, um, you know, chastised and criticized by other men for going to, you know, their son's baseball game, you know, or doing something that is, you know, traditionally fatherly. Um, and how the, or, or taking parental leave exactly, as right. a dad. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's, it's one of those issues. It's like always been on my, like my long to do list of this is a really <laughs> important topic of mm -hmm. ma men, male stereotypes, you know, sort of have men in jail of what it is to be a man. And if it stays that way, it's going to be hard to change the culture for everybody. Um, if, if there's resistance to making cultures more family friendly or whatever, just more flexible of whoever it is that you want to be, you know, we are more open to rather than having, you know, men being criticized for taking leave, caring about their family, um, those types of things. And, and while we're on the topic, I, I want to give a shout out to the Florida Bar's Young Lawyers Division because their male leadership has sort of begun this work on, you know, parental leave and just making the workplace more equitable for everyone and making it more family friendly. And they've all spoken out and come out and said, we want to spend time with our families too. So I don't know what the landscape looks like in the rest of the country, but at least within the Florida bar, I, I can see younger male leadership also demanding change and, and pushing for change. So I, I think it's just, it's really important. And, and it's a part of the reason why we're talking about all these things now more than ever, because young male leadership within the legal profession 
is, you know, jumping on board finally. And they created a whole parental leave guide that Carl right. and I, we had, yeah, we had them on. That was, it was interesting because they, they want to be good dads involved right. um, or they want to take care of elderly parents or just have a better right, quality right. of life. So yeah. I think it's really important that you mention sort of those distinctions uh, between men and women and, and how it's, you know, men sort of jail themselves and into being, you know, less family friendly and, and we need to change that. But Sort of on a similar topic, I guess, because this is all one giant topic. Uh, on the lawyerwellbeing.net website, there are profiles of firms who made it onto the list of Vault.com's best law firms for wellness for 2021. Uh, wellness was included for the first time as a category in its best law firm rankings of large and mid-sized firms. And you actually interviewed representatives from, from some of the firms. So what were the most effective implementations in these firms uh, well-being programs. I'm going to give you a lawyer response that you're going to hate, but it like, it depends. <laughs> like, and that no, was, we like yeah. those responses. Yeah. There's no one size fits all. And we, we say that all yes, the time. And that really was my conclusion because some of those that, um, were really toward the top, uh, some of them were radically different. And like, I will first say, and in all the firms that I talked to that were in these rankings, like they were all very careful to say, we know these surveys aren't scientifically valid. And, and I get that, right? <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> right, after disclaimer, disclaimer. <laughs> I know, but they suggest something, right? Like that their associates bought in the, the survey that determined the rankings were all mid-level associates that were like answering a question, like, what do you think, you know, is your, does your firm support? well-being, what do you think of your well-being program, something like that. So I was um, in interviewing them, like O'Melveny o uh, was number one, and their approach had been what I would say fairly informal, very high touch. Of They were really trying to find ways to understand, to reach out um, and connect through surveys or focus groups to get as much feedback as they could and then act on it. And that was like very important to them that they, if they were going to ask questions, they were going to act on it because otherwise you ruin trust. Um, and almost everyone that would talk to me talked about really what they were doing during the pandemic, which was you know, such even a more challenging time than regular times. Um, and so then compared to Omni, which I will say was, was quite informal, didn't necessarily have a structured committee um, or mission statement or strategic plan, like there were other firms that were highly formalized um, that um, had been potentially doing it for years, had a strategic plan, had formal committees, had large budgets. Um, and then like O'Melveny, you know, McDermott were more at the beginning, more informal, um, focused on things that they could do every day to have an impact. Every time we think of like, is a, a professional development training going on? Is there a partnership retreat? Like whatever it is that's on, that we're thinking about, how do we incorporate well-being was like one approach. And then there was this other highly structured approach um, with formal committees and they were, and both approaches were successful for these firms. And so it was, it was more, so there was no, you know, one thing that I could take away except that the real obvious one is that if your law firm leadership isn't on board, you're going to have a really hard time. And for all of the firms that I talked to, there usually was a person, either the chair or someone else that was very high in the firm that was personally invested, you know, maybe it would personally talk about their, their own well-being approaches. You know, one of them practices meditation and mindfulness. One of them talked about their own mental health challenges. Like they were personally involved. And so getting other, you know, so they're demonstrating themselves of practicing what they preach and also underscoring that this really was a value of the firm, that it's not just window dressing, which from my interviews of associates, I will say like there, there has been great skepticism among associates that, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you sign this pledge um, and say that you care about well-being, but really all you're doing is trying to teach us like meditation to make us be able to withstand the difficulty, you know, <laughs> rather than changing the culture. And I hear a lot of that. 
Um, and and oh. I, I think it's such a valid criticism that firms are trying to figure out because we're still such at the beginning stages uh, of, of firms really trying to take, you know, take efforts in this direction. So I get the criticism, but I will also say just, you know, in, <laughs> in favor of firms that they're still at the beginning stages trying to figure this out. Um, and I think a good number of them are going in the right direction. But like I said, I think the, the only thing that I can say that was absolutely like critical for all of them was that their top leadership was involved and visibly engaged. And outside of that, there were, there was a lot of variation in what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because I'm thinking firms are like, okay, well, we um, we have an in-house gym and we have, you know, mindfulness meditation at four, but... You still need to have a billion billboards. But what we really want is for you to never leave this yes. building so you can Oh, yeah. They provide <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. So then you're like in a Google situation. No, but it's funny because it's it's really, like you said, the attitude of the higher-ups. Everyone's going to take their cues right. from and those maybe, people. And maybe yeah. having an in-house gym and all of that works for some firms. I mean, so I, I think, again, it goes back to that flexibility and leadership and understanding your people and what they need. Because if what you're offering doesn't work for the vast majority of your staff, Mm -hmm. well, then it's no good. Well, and so my next question is exactly that. So firms that realize that they're, they recognize the issue, they want to do something about it. Um, And of course, when I went looking for toolkits and all that kind of thing. I'm so impressed with the Institute for Wellbeing and Law. I found the Workplace Wellbeing Handbook for Law Firms, which of course you had authored. Can you, and I know that this is something that um, it's it's a resource that you need to purchase, but can you give us um, a little bit of insight into what that is? Yes. So this is, so my orientation always has been my approach to wellbeing has been more like at the organizational and systems level of I, yes, it's important to make individuals resilient and strong and, and protect and promote their well-being. But at the same time, we need to figure out how to create cultures that don't make it so hard on the individuals so that they don't need to be, you know, as strong. And you know, the metaphor that, that I like is the fish in the fishbowl, that you can have a tough little resilient fish in a fishbowl, but if the water is polluted, you know, it doesn't matter like, oh, it doesn't matter how strong the fish is, he's, he's going to end up, you know, floating at the top. And so we really need to push beyond the current focus on individual level strategies, which is mostly where firms have started, which makes sense. Um, it, it is the easier place to start, even though it's very difficult as well. But things like um, mindfulness, meditation, resilience, stress training, uh, eating, sleeping, like those sorts of important individual <laughs> level topics have been the primary focus of law firm well-being programs. And so what what I've been trying to do through the Institute and in my own work is start encouraging people to think more about the organizational level determinants of well-being, what affects well-being at the organizational level. So things like effective leadership, leaders that are actually trained on identifying mental health issues leaders that take a more relational approach, um, that are more cognizant of the support for work-life balance, uh, fairness in procedures, engagement. Like there's a whole collection of factors that research shows, uh, organizational level factors that have an impact on well-being. And so that's what this handbook does, is it starts trying to push the envelope of, you know, here who we are, every, everyone is at this individual level focus stage and and that's great what's next um and what's what's next is thinking about systems level issues organizational level issues and practices uh that impact well-being and so the handbook goes through you know first some some thoughts about how do you how do you create a successful workplace well-being program, you know, based on the workplace well-being research, and then goes into some of the organizational themes and some things that firms can start doing to try to make some progress in those areas. Excellent. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. Thank you so much, Anne Brafford, for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. And if our listeners want to learn more about the work you're doing, where can they find those resources? Um, my website is www.aspire.com, 
And I would also encourage um, folks to go to the Institute for Wellbeing and Law's website, which is lawyerwellbeing.net, where a lot of my work product uh, is available for free. Excellent. And we will put those links up under the podcast. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. Join us next time for another episode of the Florida Bar's Legal Fuel podcast brought to you by the Practice Resource Center of the Florida Bar. I'm Christine Bilbrey. And I'm Carla Eckhart. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalFuel.com. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to the Florida Bar's podcast via iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and RSS. Find the Florida Bar's Practice Resource Center Legal Fuel on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by the Florida Bar. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.